Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful Sunday morning where we can learn about you and through this uh, familiar passage, but Lord, you might have something still for us even though we think we know what it says. Um, so Lord, please convict us and um, we pray, God, that you would um, cut us to the heart today, Lord, and show us how good you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Have you guys ever had a miracle happen to you in your life? Like something that couldn't be explained and just really out there. Has anyone ever had anything like really crazy happen to them? No? All ordinary lives? No secret wizards in here? <laughs> or, yeah, I was thinking Harry Potter, not Doctor Strange. <laughs> Um, okay, well, maybe you guys wouldn't share in a large group. If you're a Christian, I want to say there's a miracle that's happened in your life already, the miracle of conversion. Don't take that for granted. When you become a believer, that is a miracle, that nothing but the act and power of God can do that in your life. That's nothing that you can do on your own. And so if we believe that miracles can happen nowadays, it sets us up that can God do a miracle back then, 5,000, or not, 2,000 years ago, feeding the 5,000? I think we often leave, we live in a secular age where we, because we can't explain miracles, it must not exist. So when we read the Bible, it must seem like a fairy tale if a miracle or something incredible happens. But I want us to come to the scriptures with an attitude of, of submission and curiosity. Like, if this is true, what does that mean for our life? If Jesus fed the 5,000, is that just a cool story? Or does that have implications for our life? And so I think you guys, most of you guys have heard this story before, but I hope that it can still cut to your heart by the power of the Spirit. And that's my hope today. So to recap what we've been going through the last couple of weeks, we know that um, Jesus healed a lame man, a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, and he spent a lot of time defending why he was able to do that. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he is the Son of Man, he is the Messiah. And one way to authenticate if Jesus really is the Son of God is this. Can he do things that only God can do? Right? If someone claims to be God in your life, can they do godly things? Can they do unexplainable things that only the God of the universe can do? And the answer is yes if we take the scriptures seriously. Miracles are just basically unexplainable events that defy logic, maybe physics, maybe nature. And this confirms that Jesus is he says he is. If a random dude or, or girl went up to you and claimed to be a superhero, and you probably think he or she were insane, but if they started to fly in the sky, like legit fly in the sky, you think, oh wow, maybe this person actually is a superhero. And so these miracles that Jesus does, it affirms who he is as the Messiah, the Son of God. So it, we're going to touch upon themes like faith, or sometimes our lack of faith in God. So here's a preview that we're going to go through today. Um, pretty simple. We're going to explain the passage, and then afterwards I have two questions uh, to consider for each of you here in this room. All right, so your Bible should still be open. Let's jump into John 6, and we'll break it down piece by piece. If you're not in the Bible, feel free to look at uh, your neighbor's Bible. Um, we encourage paper Bibles. Nothing simple about an electronic Bible, but because we ask you guys to put away your phones, it's just consistent to remove any distraction. So... Thank you for cooperating on that. So, 
We're going to set the scene. What's happening in the feeding of the 5,000? Let's look at John chapter 6. Let's look at the first four verses, 1 to 4. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sea. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. I have a picture of setting the scene. Uh, this is what modern day the Sea of Galilee looks like. It's, you can see roads, so it's obviously not from 2,000 years ago. But this is what it looks like nowadays, the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus went to the uh, other side, the east side of Galilee. Um, nowadays might be known as, um, I believe, Golan Heights or the Sea of Tiberias. And so uh, the Sea of Galilee is about 7 miles wide and 13 miles long. And we see that a large crowd is following Jesus. They're treating him like a celebrity. They don't want to follow or see Jesus because they want to obey him. Look at verse 2. The large crowd is following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So they just want to see another magician. They just want to see another miracle. If we see a magician, we, we want to see them, whether it's um, David Copperfield, Shin Lim, or uh, Daniel Chow's dad. We want to see a magician in real life because it's pretty crazy. And so these people treated Jesus almost like a magician. What's the next crazy thing he's going to do? And so another key thing that we see in this passage is that it takes place around the Jewish Passover. All right, we see that in verses, please, um, verse 4, that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Let me switch mics really quick. This might not be working. Um, now, if you're unfamiliar oh, you know, with the Jewish Passover, it's basically like July 4th for the Jews. It's a, a day of national pride. You know, like for us, July 4th, you have the American flags, like we're celebrating our country. The Passover was July 4th for the Jews. And if you remember the Passover from Exodus, it's a celebration that looks back on the greatest events in Israel's history, which was God delivering their people from slavery in Egypt. It was highlighted on the final plague that killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so the Israelites, they could, um, they could protect themselves if they slaughtered a lamb and painted their blood on the doors on the doorposts. Now I want you to keep in mind that this is foreshadowing something. So in the Passover, it was a sacrificial lamb that was killed. But this is being fulfilled by Jesus because Jesus will one day be that perfect spotless lamb. And it's one, it's the once and for all sacrifice that will pay for your sins once and for all. So I want us to keep that in mind. But in this miracle, you also remember that when the Israelites went to the wilderness, God provided manna for them, right? When they were complaining, when they didn't have any food. And so this is now being fulfilled in Jesus when he provides for the 5,000. And later on, we're not going to get into this today, but Jesus will call himself the bread of life. It's the fulfillment of a spiritual need um, for all humans. Something that was in Old Testament foreshadowed by manna, but now in the New Testament fulfilled in Jesus, the bread of life. I'm getting ahead of myself, but... Um, we're going to focus on the feet of 5,000 today. But I want you guys to keep that in mind. So let's see what happens. Let's look at verses 5 and 9. We're going to see that mankind's trust, they tend to trust in rational thinking and human logic. So let's look at verses 5 to 9. Lifting up his eyes, Jesus' eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So I want you to imagine this scene. They're by the lake, and a large crowd hovers towards Jesus. Now, how many are in this crowd? Obviously, you know that it's the feeding of the 5,000. But you look in verse 10, this only refers to the men in the crowd. So they counted 5,000 men. But if you include the women and the children, that could easily add to over 20,000 people in total. So it could be more accurate to say the feeding of the 20,000, not just the 5,000. Back in, uh, I think, October or November, as a hopeful Lakers fan, I got tickets to the home opener. And in attendance, it had 18,000 997 people in attendance. How do I know the exact number? Because they give out free t-shirts and it says 18997. I use it as my PJs nowadays because it's like in Excel. Um, so imagine that the crowds back there were even bigger than a sellout crowd at Staples Center. 20,000 people, if not more, following Jesus like a celebrity while Jesus is just with his disciples. This is a problem. 20,000 hungry people, what is Jesus going to do about this? And it says that Jesus knew what he's about to do. Verse 6, it says that Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do, meaning he knew that he would perform a miracle. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus is trying to tempt Andrew or Philip. Jesus would never tempt us. But he does sometimes test our faith. He does put us in positions where we can choose to put faith in God or faith in our own understanding. And that's what's happening here. Jesus turns to Philip. Philip is from the surrounding area, so he would have known like the good uh, food areas. He said, hey, Phil, like, what's, what's a good place to get food around here for these 20,000 people? And Philip, in his human logic, he says, 200 denarii, I can't even provide enough food for each person to have a bite. And if you don't know how much 200 denarii is, that's about an eight months, eight months salary for, for a family. So that's great for a family, but to feed 20,000 people right here, right now, there's not even enough uh, to, feed, get a, to get everyone uh, one bite. So to feed 20,000 people, you need like the greatest all-you-can-eat buffet of the century to supply that much food. And Andrew is no different. Andrew is his other disciple. He actually brings a boy who, uh, in the Greek language, it emphasizes how small and little the boy is. It uh, uses like a double term to emphasize. It's just like a small little lad, like a small boy who has five barley loaves, which is like cheap bread, imagine like, I don't know, bread from Aldi, um, or two fish. Not like the nice salmon sashimi, but like the side dishes, uh, that type of fish. It's very small, not very impressive at all. And he says, Lord, we have a boy who has five bread, two fish, but what are they for so many? It's like trying to imagine a Happy Meal from McDonald's, trying to feed the entire Staples Center, 20,000 people. It just doesn't make sense. And so imagine what Jesus might be thinking there in that moment. Jesus right there, knowing he's about to perform a miracle and seeing the lack of faith from his disciples, Andrew and Philip, but seeing the faith of this little boy who didn't know much, but he had what he had, five loaves of bread and two fish. I have a small picture um, to uh, illustrate this. I've done this in a while. Um, that the faith of a little boy can still somehow outmatch the faith of Jesus' disciples, his best, his best friends. And so, let's see what Jesus is about to do. Let's see the miracle in verses 10 to 15. 
Read along with me. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the weird part. Verse 15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Alright, so let's break this down. 20,000 people here sitting in the grassy area and Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and gives thanks to God and distributes it to the 20,000 people. In some supernatural way, he performs a miracle. As I was studying this, I thought, man, I wish there was like a surveillance camera just keeping an eye on what Jesus did with his hands. Is it like a magician, like a sleight of hand? You want to see like what he does, but it doesn't have that in the Bible. Remember on Friday, uh, Pastor Terrence preached that the Bible doesn't always explain how something happens, but why something happens. It's why there's a lot of tension between science and faith. Science tends to focus on how something happens, but scripture is interested in the why, the theology. Why would Jesus feed the 5,000? Why would he do this miracle? And so we're going to see why. And uh, we see in verse 12, even the details of how much every person was filled. In verse 12 it says, When they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So it wasn't that every person got a tiny piece of breadcrumb, and that was enough to feed the whole crowd. It wasn't like that. It said that everyone had eaten their fill until, until their heart was content. So I want you to think about the last time you just finished eating at an all-you-can-eat sushi or Korean barbecue. Think about the way your stomach just feels full to the brim and you feel like you can't even walk outside the restaurant. That's what it's like when you eat to your fill. And that's what Jesus was able to do the miraculous, uh, to miraculously feed the 20,000 people. Now I want us to notice also another small detail, which I didn't notice at first. But when they gather the mountain baskets, in verse 13, they said that it fills 12 baskets with fragments with five barley loaves. There's something interesting about that number 12. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know that 12 is an important number because there are 12 tribes of Israel. And so in a way, to fill 12 baskets worth of leftover bread, it's a hint that Jesus is the Messiah to the nation of Israel, to the Jews. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile, which is to us as non-Jews. So this... Uh, uh, this uh, miracle is what's called a messianic sign. And a messian messianic sign is simply a miracle that points to Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as a son of God. That's a messianic sign for the purpose that unbelievers might have faith. And so I want us to notice now the crowd's reaction. They see this crazy miracle, and then the first instinct is like, wow, this is the prophet, verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, is there anything wrong with that statement? I'm not so sure. But I want to show you the original context. So keep your finger in John, and now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want us to understand the mind of a Jewish, Jewish person 
and why they might think Jewish or Jesus is the Messiah. So, the Jews, they think Jesus is the prophet because Moses said something about a future prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Turn there really quick. I'll keep a finger in John. So, just to give you context, Moses is giving instruction to the people of God, and now he focuses and talks about a prophet like Moses. So, if you're there in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, it looks like you guys are there. Let me read for us what it says. Moses speaking to his people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So stop there. So the Jews in this crowd, this is the context they have in their mind. They knew Moses, one of their forefathers, one of their ancestors, said that a prophet will come along them, a special prophet. And now they just see Jesus as this prophet perform an amazing miracle. And they're thinking, wow, he's a prophet. Is this it? Is this a prophet? Now turn back to John 6. It's not that it's incorrect to say that Jesus is a prophet. That's not incorrect to say. It's just that Jesus comes as something so much more than a prophet. He did not want to come merely as a prophet. That is true. But he came as a Messiah, the Christ, the one who would be the Savior of the, of the world. So the reason the Jews thought uh, wanted to take him as force to be king is because the prophet had a almost kingly or like almost like a war leader, um, someone who would deliver the people of Israel. Because remember back then, Moses delivered the uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. So they must they must be thinking now, maybe Jesus will deliver us from uh, the Roman rule because they lived under Roman rule back then. So that's why they try to take Jesus by force, and Jesus realized it's not my time. I'm not. I didn't come here to dominate an earthly kingdom in this way. Jesus knew that the path to glory would come through a cross, through suffering, to, through torture, not through glory and through fame and through all the, um, all the popularity that he would get. So this is why Jesus tries to make a quick escape. All right? And so um, after Jesus makes that quick escape, he's going to perform another miracle, this time just in front of his disciples. And this will be our final portion for today. So let's look at verses 16 and 21 and see Jesus perform his second miracle the passage. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boats, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I won't unpack this passage as much as the feeding of the 5,000, but I do want to point out this is another miracle that confirms that Jesus, if he claims to be God, well, right now he's doing godly things. He's doing things that only God can do. And these disciples, they're rowing their boats in the middle of the lake. They're terrified, it's in a storm, it's at night, which means you're ten times more scared when it's nighttime. And they see a figure walking towards them on water, as if it was like walking on, on the ground or on the road. 
I think any one of us would be scared, shaking our boots if we saw a figure walking on water in that moment. They think it's a ghost, at least according to other accounts like in Mark. But Jesus reveals himself. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And again, Jesus confirms that he is a son of God by doing things that only God can do. If even the laws of physics, nature, and even the sea obey his command, well, maybe Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. And so, as we think about what's happened in this passage, I want us to take away two, these two questions. Uh, I don't want us just to walk away from today's sermon and think, oh, that was kind of a cool story. I heard that in children's worship. I saw um, some movies about it, like from VeggieTales. Just because we learned about this as kids, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have any impact for us as teenagers or even when you're older as adults. So I want to ask you guys two questions as a result of today's passage. The first one is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you right now, in your heart, believe in Jesus? You might be thinking, Kevin, that's it? That's the special application question? I expected, I don't know, something a little bit more unique. But sometimes, isn't it the same old truth that we often forget? But it's the one we need to hear. Especially for you guys, most of you guys who have grown up in church, maybe your uh, the Bible stories are normalized to you. Maybe you're desensitized to how amazing these stories are. I know I certainly can be, um, studying the Bible, reading it over. But let's not forget the core issue of why John wrote his gospel. John wrote his gospel as a historical account to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, so that non-believers... People who are lost in their sin can believe in Jesus and experience eternal life in his name. So let me ask you guys again, do you believe in Jesus? Do you actually believe that a Jesus 2,000 years ago uh, fed 20,000 people and confirmed that this is something only a God can do? I don't want to assume that every single person here is saved. In fact, I operate from a very different mindset that most people here Maybe either, maybe either unsaved or wrestling with their faith, or it's hard to tell. I don't go into every Friday night or every sermon knowing that I'm preaching to a full room of believers. That's not the nature of youth ministry. That's not the nature of your demographic. Even this past Friday night when we talked about uh, does science disprove Christianity, reflecting on my small group, we had one of the most lively small group discussions because people were transparent if they truly believed in God. They wanted to believe that maybe a God could exist. They saw the way science often refuted, or at least atheist scientists refuted um, Christianity. And when we were bringing up some really difficult stuff, and afterwards driving home, uh, I, I journal, I, I was really thankful that students can just come together and be transparent about where they are with their faith. They like the idea of God, but they're still on the fence. And that's you right now. We love that you're here. In fact, this is the very reason that I'm excited to give this sermon to you because we want you to see that this is the Son of God. And we want to give you this space to wrestle with, do I actually believe any of this Bible stuff? Do I actually believe any of this, this stuff that my Sunday school teachers say, that the pastors say, or is this something that my parents forced me to go to and that's why I'm here on a Friday or, or Sunday? We want to give you space for that. But at the same time, I want you to know that sooner or later, you and I are faced with a question that we must answer. Will I choose to believe that Jesus is real? 
that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sinner's death on the cross for sinners like you and me, or do I not? Do I think it's baloney, a fairy tale, a myth, one of many religions to the path to God? Every single person here must make that choice if you believe and trust in Jesus as your Savior, or if you do not. And I want you to know that the same Jesus who fed 20,000 people is alive right now. He's not on earth, but he's in heaven. He is right now seated at the right hand of God, and he is speaking to you right now through his word. And we have just seen his, uh, his miracles that uh, confirm that he is the son of God. And so maybe another question is, do you even trust what the Bible says? So will you consider that today? Will you wrestle with your faith today? It is an act of faith to believe in God. I can't 100%, 1,000% show you the surveillance camera that, hey, this is Jesus. He just walked out of the, the grave. He just fed 20,000 people. I can't provide that for you. It's still a leap of faith on your end. But I will say, as we saw on Friday, it's also a leap of faith, maybe a greater leap of faith, to hold to atheism or to believe that Jesus or God does not exist. That is also a leap of faith that you must make, and perhaps a greater leap of faith to explain why the world is the way it is. If heaven and hell are real, and if life is short, you need to make a decision. And time is running out. I know we woke up yesterday, and we'll probably wake up tomorrow, but who knows when Jesus is returning? Who knows the times and dates when God will soon judge us? You never know. This is not a decision to wait until you graduate high school, college, and get things settled down. It's a question to answer right now in your seats. We don't know the future. So I beg you, as your pastor, as your shepherd, I love seeing you guys every Friday and Sunday. I love seeing you guys. But even more so, I hope that you see the Jesus, the risen Christ that we see in the scriptures. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe who he says he claims to be? So that's the first question for those who might be wrestling with their faith. But now I want to address people, if you claim to be a Christian, now I want to address those who claim to be Christian in this room. If you claim to have faith in God, my second question is, are you still living by faith? It's not just a one-time decision when you're in second, third, fourth grade, like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You also have to now live the life of a Christian. Are you living by faith? Is your life guided by faith in God and what he can do? Or is your life guided by sight, by what the facts say, by what is normal and safe and rational and reasonable? If you're a Christian, you've already made an incredible um, You've already made an incredible confession that you believe that a man rose from the dead. You already believe in something crazy. So are you going to now live by that faith? And I'll let it put it is, are you willing to take risks for God? Are you willing to take risks for God? Now, disclaimer, I'm not telling you to jump off a cliff and say, hey, Kevin told me to live by faith and take risks for God. See you, Mom and Dad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about what Andrew and Philip went through in this passage, that their lack of faith in Jesus led them to rely on their own rational thinking. They're thinking, a happy meal, five bread, two fish, I can't even feed 20,000 people, and they forgot that the God of the universe was standing right there. 
I love it when my uncle and my aunt visit from uh, Chicago because I'm so inspired by his faith. Um, he, he was born in Vietnam, but he came here as a teenager. Um, he got involved in, uh, in gangs, and um, he was even shot. There's like a wound right here. I'm like, hey, Vanessa, there's like a gunshot wound. She's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, but he's like the kindest soul ever. Um, and like on his thumb right there, there's like a small tattoo from like his gang or whatever. But you wouldn't believe that from just the way he is. He's a very gentle, um, gentle man, loving family. And he's now actually um, getting his PhD in, um, uh, at Wheaton College, I believe, in some sort of New Testament thing. And I love when he comes over because I know the life he lived. And I asked him, like, hey, like, Cal, that's his name, C-A-U. It's like Vietnamese or something. Um, I'm like, oh, how's life? He's like, oh, it's like really crazy right now. I, I, I don't know if I can finish this dissertation, which is like a final project for PhD students. Um, like, he's got four kids he has to feed. Um, and they don't, like, the wife doesn't work. And I'm like, I'm like isn't that crazy, but he tells me, like, you know, Kevin, I kind of, like, I'm not afraid of these moments, not because I feel like I can, like, um, I can handle it, but because it shows, it forces me to trust on God, and it allows God to show off what he can do. I know I can't do it. I, I, like, he has a very low education. When he started seminary, he had, like, an eighth grade or ninth grade um, education, reading level. He always tells me, like, it's all about trusting God. Um, like, I, I like these moments where I'm pushing into the corner because it shows how much God can do and how much little I can do. Um, and he says things that I've heard my whole life, like trusting God, like God will provide. But to hear from someone like him, the life he's lived, I'm like, wow, you really believe this? And he's really pushing the corner. He can do nothing but trust in God. And I want us to remember, like, that little boy in this passage. He's just a puny little boy five bread, two fish, but God uses this young boy to feed 20,000 people and cement his status as the son of God. I know students, a lot of people look down on you. Maybe aunts and uncles, aunties and uncles at this church say, oh, like, they're just kids, just make them do like this stuff. Or maybe people in the world just look at you as teenagers and think there's not much you can do. But I actually don't believe that because time and time again in the Bible, God uses teenagers, young people, to do his will. God uses a teenage girl to give birth to the Son of God. Mary was a teenage girl, and she gave birth to the Son of God. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it would be a scandal back then and now if a teenager was pregnant, but God supernaturally used her to give birth to the Son of God. God uses David, a young boy, to defeat Goliath and to be Israel's greatest king, greatest earthly king, that is. He still made a lot of mistakes, but he was a great king at certain points in his life. So if God loves to use young people in the Bible, wouldn't he want to use people like you? Wouldn't he want to use people who are willing to put his faith, put your faith in him? Imagine what God can do if you actually took a risk for him. Let God show off what he can do in your life. But the question is, are you even giving him room to work in your life? Or is your life guided by what's normal? I gotta finish school, I gotta do homework, I gotta get to a good college, I gotta get a good job, uh, get married, get a good house, uh, make my parents proud. Are you guided by the American dream, by what's normal, by your peers? Or are you guided by faith? That maybe God has a different path for you. Maybe it is through the normal path in life, but maybe it's not. But are you even giving God the chance to work and to show off what he can do in your life? Live in a way that makes room for faith in God. I'll share a quick story and then I'll uh, close soon. 
As some of you guys know, I work, uh, Vanessa and I, we work with a Christian club at Diamond Bar High School. We never would imagine we would do things like that. In fact, when I was in high school, when I passed by the Christian club, I think, wow, they're just a bunch of nerds. Like, they go to church. Like, why do they do a Christian club on campus? And I never really was involved in that. I actually didn't do any clubs in high school because I was so disengaged. And a couple of years ago, January 2019, I heard about an organization called a National School Project. It sounds like a secular, but it's actually very Christian. And it's about training Christian leaders in high schools to share the gospel on their school campuses. And it was around that same time when Pastor Albert was challenging the pastors, hey, you need to lead your people. Go outside the four walls. What are you doing? And I'm like, um, I'm not really sure what I'm doing. I don't know how outreach-oriented I am. And then someone tells me about this organization. And I look at the website. I'm like, oh, okay. That's uh, interesting. And so I just sent an email. I'm like, hey, like this sounds cool, but what does it actually look like? Um, and I said, oh, well, you can actually come to one of the leaders' meetings on, uh, they meet on Sundays, like the high school Christian leaders. They're mentored by a collegian. Uh, why don't you sit in on that? I'm like, okay, that's probably the next step. And so we go to this um, coffee place in uh, Hacienda Heights, Coffee and Flower. And I just sit in. I just kind of imagine, like, what is going on here? And it's like three students and a collegian mentor. And they're like coaching each other how to get the gospel into campuses. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, these high school students are kind of quiet. Like, they're not like these loud, extroverted people. They're kind of, they, they almost seem like unimpressive. Like, they're kind of quiet. They're, they don't, they're not very talkative. And in two or three weeks at that time, they had to plan, like, their major outreach week um, in March. So it's like the week where every single day there's something happening. And I'm like, wow, are these two or three, like, quiet students, can they actually pull it off? And I, I didn't know. So I walked away, like, I wonder what's going to happen. A couple weeks later, they invited me to come out to the outreach week um, on the campus, so Wilson High School. I'm like, okay, what's going to happen? Um, and I walk into the campus, I get checked in the front office, they get a name tag, and they're pulling their, um, I guess, the rally in the library. And I go in, and the place is packed with students. And I, I had a picture from that day, uh, if you can show it, it's a Wilson um, library. I'm like, how did two or three quiet students managed to pack in entire library. And I think uh, some of you guys go to Wilson, right? Irissa, Lindsay, and Reese. Um, and if you actually notice, Oscar Wong is in this picture. He's like this brown shirt guy over there. I, I saw him. And well, of course, pizza helps me. Offer free pizza. You can crowd any room. But I was impressed. Like, I didn't think much. I didn't think two or three shy, quiet students, unimpressed, could actually pull off something like this. But they were like outside, like, hey, I'm just, oh, whoa. <laughs> oh, there. There's like free pizza. We're going to talk about Jesus in a library right now, and you would not believe just how he would shepherd and guide people into the library, lock them in. And I thought to myself afterwards, wow, shame on me for um, not giving God the chance to show off and see what he can do. Like these three students, when they put their faith in God, they can pack an entire library and just uh, share the gospel. And I'm just thinking, like, what about for you? I'm not saying every single one of you guys has, has to join a Christian club, but how are you living in a way, taking wise risks for God and forcing yourself to depend on Him so that God can come through? Maybe it's a small step, like it's inviting your non-Christian friend to church. That's always an awkward topic to talk about religion with your friends, but maybe it's like they ask you, hey, what are you doing Friday night? And you just say, oh, I'm, I'm going to church. You want to come along? Just see what they say. Maybe it's 
when the topic of religion comes up, you can actually contribute something and share about your faith and not being worried about what your friends talk about. Maybe if uh, you have an assignment where you have, to, you have the opportunity to integrate your faith, maybe about a controversial topic, you can actually share your faith and not be afraid of what your classmates might think about you. Maybe it's simple as you know your whole class cheats and they ask you for answers and you choose not to. Not because you think you're better than them, but because you want to live as a Christian and you know that living as a light in this dark world um, will not be easy, but you want to live that way. Maybe, and this is hard, maybe it's choosing not to take as much extracurriculars, clubs, and sports because you know if you overload your schedule, you won't have time for school or for church. What if you adjusted your life schedule so that you could prioritize God? What if you chose a college, not based on the greatest opportunity, but based on the church community that's available there? That is countercultural to the American dream when it's all about success and money and having a good future. You guys are capable of doing so much if you place your faith in God and you give God the room and the space to show off and show what he can do. So let me ask you again, are you living by faith or by sight? Here's my big idea today. The feeding of the 5,000 is one sign that confirms Jesus as the Messiah so that you may believe in his name, live by faith, and experience eternal life. If you take the Bible to be true, then we just read about a man who performed an unthinkable miracle. And that could prove that he is God. And that's true. Then now the ball is in your court. You have a decision to make. Will you believe in Jesus? And if you do, are you living by faith? Let me pray now. And give us 30 seconds, actually, in silence, just to think about those questions. Number one, do you believe in Jesus? And number two, are you living by faith right now if you do call yourself a Christian? So let me give us 30 minutes of, or not 30 minutes, <laughs> 30 seconds of silence um, to think and meditate on those two questions, and then I'll close us in prayer. before you, each and every soul here will answer this question one day. Do we trust in you as our Lord and Savior? As your Savior that you save us from our sins. As our Lord that you are the master and the king of our life. God, I pray that there are students here who are on the fence, if they are um, maybe skeptical, if they are maybe outright um, just do not believe, God, I pray that you would work in their hearts melt their heart of stone, and help them to see who you truly are. Give them the eyes of faith 
to see you as Lord and Savior. And I pray for the students here who are genuinely saved. God, I praise you that we will be rejoicing and in your presence forever and ever. Our joy will have no end. But God, right now as we're on this earth, I pray that those Christians here would continue living by faith. They would not be sucked in by the American dream that says it's all about money, success, and prestige. That they would aim higher. That to glorify you, to know you, to serve you, to make your, know, your name great. Last in eternity. You can impact souls for you forever. And God, I pray that they would take risks for your glory and that you would prove yourself to be faithful in those moments. God, may we live by faith, believe in your name, and experience the, the joy of eternal life today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.